Tonight, one of two Troy police officers injured in a shootout a little more than a week ago has just been released from the hospital. Officer Josh Comitel went home this afternoon, and as Anne McCloy reports, it was an emotional moment for him and his colleagues. Applause erupted for Officer Joshua Comitel on his way out of Albany Medical Center. A crowd of his fellow colleagues and supporters so large, you couldn't see him. When you look back at last week, events, um, you know, you didn't know if this day was going to happen. So obviously, uh, it's a tremendous day for Troy PD and for the Comitels. Comitel spent nine long days in the hospital. He was shot back on August 22nd while trying to help stop suspected carjacker Thaddeus Faison. Gunfire struck both of the officers' legs. Today, Troy Police Chief John Tedesco offered good news about Comitel's recovery. His strength is back. His spirits are excellent. That's, I think, nine-tenths of the battle. So I would fully expect he's going to return to full duty. Faison shot Comitel and Officer Chad Klein, who'd been called to help back up Comitel on 112th Street and 5th Avenue. Officer Klein was released from the hospital last week. Today he returned arm in sling to support Comitel, just as he did the day they were both attacked. Chief Tedesco says Klein is also expected to return to work. I think he'll probably be back certainly sooner than Josh will. But um, he's doing very well. It's good spirits. Faison died in the shootout after Comitel returned fire. Faison's death prompted a rally from his friends. Chief Tedesco says he's reviewed surveillance video that captured the shooting and says Officer Comitel's actions were heroic. I can't explain his bravery. It's off the charts. I think for a young officer, for any officer, to be able to collect your thoughts um, and continue to protect yourself and others while you're in the midst of being fired on, while you're in the midst of being shot, uh, it's just beyond words. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. So 133, I need somebody that's got a visual of where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. The one that will bring everyone back. Troubling, we have shots fired, shots fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. I'm going to have an officer shot. An officer shot. 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down. Suspect is down. This is the squad room. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squad, the podcast about navigating the challenging terrain of our demanding careers as law enforcement professionals. My name is Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty sergeant for a sheriff's office here in Southern California, and I'm here to help you learn tactics and strategies for taking care of yourself, your family, and your community. The episode you're about to listen to is actually uh, one of my favorites uh, of recent memory. Josh Kamatal of Troy, New York PD, has quite the will to survive story. A fantastic uh, guy, just an absolute uh, sweet sweet guy who's really taken such a traumatic or potentially traumatic event and used it as a catalyst towards teaching others, towards uh, bettering himself and bettering uh, and making other officers safe. So can't thank Josh enough for the time that he spent with us on this. Uh, if you're new to the show, 
I highly encourage you to check out some of the other great guests that we've had, like Andy Stumpf on episode 80, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on episode 62, uh, ATF Undercover Agent Jay Dobbins on episode 75, Ryan Mickler of Ordered of Man on episode 67, and a lot, lot more great guests. A lot of things have happened, and you may have noticed if you are listening to the show on a regular basis that... Uh, you know, I've had a bit of a delay in episodes, probably the longest gap I've had in quite some time. Uh, and that's for a couple different reasons. One, uh, completely valid. Uh, and I'll talk about it more in a future episode when I've had my a chance to wrap my head around it entirely. Uh, but many of you, I'm sure, saw, and it was, it was international news, but the dive boat uh, disaster, the, the Conception dive boat fire that occurred off the coast of California. Uh, and that was in my jurisdiction. And as the dive team supervisor, I was heavily involved in that incident and in the recovery effort. And that pretty much took up my entire September. So any efforts to get anything done in that time were pretty much shot. So I think anyone would understand if I explained that, uh, some other stuff going on as well, just, you know, mundane things, kids going back to school, et cetera. So had to take a little pause, but we're, uh, we're back with a few new episodes and my next episode I'm really excited about as well. I'll tell you a little bit about it here because it leads right into uh, my 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 uh, my plug for my sponsor. Uh, but I got to go down to ProForce a couple of weeks ago and do a live podcast event. And thank you for everyone who came out for that. That was a lot of fun. I uh, got to do something with a live audience and got to interview Aram Cho, better known on social media as Nine One One Strong. Uh, he is an up and comer in the social media space. And we had a great conversation, so you can check that out in a few weeks. But Got to spend the day down at ProForce, hanging out with Mikey and the crew. They took such good care of me as they do with all the customers that I saw come and go. You know, they uh, they 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 seem to have a reputation for only handling uh, first uh, firemen or can't even talk for only handling cops and taking care of cops at the, at the store. But that's actually not true. They also do uh, any first responder and they also do security guards. So if you're looking for a new firearm, uh, holsters, uh, equipment, any of the sorts of things that come with it, lights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, Make sure you check them out in Brea. And if you do go in and you're looking for a light, use the uh, the secret password, the squad room, and you'll get 20% off a Streamlight TLR1. That's the same light I use on my P320, and I love it. So, again, use that code word, the squad room, and get 20% off a TLR1 light. If you're an agency rep and you're looking to, uh, you know, uh, get rid of those old aging uh, firearms that you have and upgrade to something like a P320 or a G17 or the MMPs or whatever else you might have, you uh, you get a chance, uh, you can go and talk to their sales reps uh, because they're actually in the business of doing full agency uh, transitions. And they've done a lot of them and they've done some of the biggest agencies in the world. So if you think your agency uh, is big and needs some help, ProForce is the place to go. And they can take care of you on the agency level too. They'll give you no uh, pressure, no obligation quote. Just call the sales department at 1-800-367-5855. Again, one 800 367 Five eight five five, or email them sales at proforceonline.com. All right, real quick, one last thing before we get to this amazing interview with Josh. Listen to it. You're going to hear some of the radio traffic as well. Uh, he did an awesome job. And then at the end of the episode, if you want to support the show, you want to find out ways you can help without spending a dime extra, doesn't cost you any money, you can actually save money. Uh, check it out. I'll tell you how you can help us out uh, by using Amazon links, uh, how you can save money on Ranger Up Clothing. Uh, and other and other affiliates that help support the show, uh, in addition to uh, throwing some love at ProForce if you're able to go down there. Uh, so check that out at the end of the show. But for now, here we are with Josh Kamatal and his will-to-survive story of Shots Fired. 
Josh Comato. Welcome to the show. Jared, I appreciate <laughs> the uh, invite. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so uh, we uh, connected up like uh, it seems like so many people do these days through social media. <laughs> um, and I got to learn your story and, and in, invited you on because I think what you're gonna sh- what you're gonna share with us today is a great example of so many of the attributes that we talk about in training, uh, not just on the show, but as a you know in our departments or on, in our roll calls, and uh, oftentimes the things that we we wonder about, and at least that I do, you know, wonder about uh, what, how will I respond if dot dot dot, right? And uh, so many of us have these questions in our mind we run through scenarios and then there are people like you who have been presented with a situation where you no longer have that question hanging over your head about what you would do so before we get into that though josh can you tell us a little bit about uh yourself and where you work and the type of agency you're with Uh, absolutely so um i am a 11 year veteran of the city of troy police department it's upstate new york we're 130 man department. The city's about 10 and a half square miles, 50,000 or so people. At the time of the uh, incident and now, I'm primarily an afternoon. Uh, I was afternoons patrol slash evidence technician then. Now I'm an evidence, or I'm sorry, now I'm a detective on the afternoon shift. So um, I am currently on our SWAT team. I was on our SWAT team then. I'm a firearms instructor, chemical agents instructor general topics, uh, like I said, crime scene technician, and I've worked the gamut from patrol, pretty much everything other than uh, being promoted to supervisor because I just never, never had the, I guess, never <laughs> the desire to, to You're not going to offend boss, me. <laughs> <laughs> never had the desire to become a boss, and um, I'm third generation too, so my my father worked for the police department for just about 25 or so years. My grandfather also worked for the police department. And I actually have my grandfather's detective shield uh, from 1960. So it's kind of a, it's a big deal for me to, to work with Troy and to stay here and, and have the ability to, to carry on the, the family legacy. That's amazing. I didn't know that third generation. Wow. And so like we were talking before we I hit record about, because you are a smaller department. I mean, it's funny you say smaller, but then in context to other agencies, you're massive. 130 sworn people. That's a lot of, that's a lot of cops to some agencies, but for a lot, like any agency of a smaller size, you wear a lot of hats. Uh, and so you're, you, you were a sworn patrol officer at the time that you were also the evidence tech, but it sounds like evidence was your, 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 your collateral assignment was to respond to crime scenes and document the crime scenes and that sort of stuff. Yes. So uh, we have a department eight man minimum. So on any shift, we have a minimum of eight guys working. Um, most times it's a little bit more than that. But as a as a person assigned, as an officer assigned to the evidence technician unit, there are nine evidence technicians that work the department, three on each shift, um, three on midnights, three on days and three on afternoons. Mm-hmm. So I was an afternoon evidence tech. But if let's say there were seven guys on the schedule that night and then i was the eighth as an evidence technician i would be pulled from my either citywide or north or south evidence technician spot and i would be stuck in a patrol zone so on a good night i would have the ability to either float the whole city or work half of the city and 
respond and back up other guys and not be the primary officer to uh, respond to routine patrol calls. But the night of the incident, we were we were low, so I was removed from the primary evidence tech spot and I was put in a in a patrol zone to assist to, uh, with routine calls. And up until then, you know, you started in two thousand eight. You said, what was it about patrol that you enjoyed the most? Just it was working with the guys and it, and it was helping decent people because you just it, when you get out of the academy you're, you're you're full of just the energy and and wanting to fight crime and and you, you definitely do that but there's the times where you, you actually help decent people and you're not just you're not dealing with the worst that society has to offer when you you see it, you make a kid smile or you you help some lady shovel her driveway because she can't because she's older it, stuff like that i think was it made it made the job a little bit more bearable is, is that there's there's still decent people in the world um and as i was as a junior guy you, you, you come out of the academy and you're ready to go and and i think you lose sight of you you think everyone you're going to deal with is a criminal and then once you start to get time on and you deal with more people there there still are decent people out there and it is nice to help them yeah, I think uh, it takes some perspective to to remember that we all we all lose sight of that for a little while. I think you know it seems like you go. I think everybody has gone through that ebb where it seems like everyone you're dealing with is a criminal or a crook and liar, or, you know, and <laughs> and you get to a point, and then it, at some point we step back and 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 do we see those we see the good people. You know? So talk to me about. Um, the night of August 22nd, 2015. So August 22nd, 2015 is, is one of those days that I will, that you remember forever. I remember, I remember what I ate for breakfast that morning. I was, I was with my wife who was eight months pregnant at the time. Um, and we were, we were at a restaurant in the, in the downtown of the city and we were having breakfast pizza. And I remember her asking me, and I will remember it's the day that I die. She says, what, what happens if you get hurt at work? How do I get notified? Mm. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. There's, I filled out a form five years ago that has your info on it or that had family's info. And I updated it um, when we got married. So it's, there's a, there's a form <laughs> they're supposed to follow and you get called. That's, I don't know. It's, that's all I can tell you. And then fast forward until the start of the shift that, um, 3.30, we have lineup. Roll call comes and I look around and it's it's a Saturday night and there's there's nobody <laughs> there's nobody here. So there's there's seven other guys and there was then uh, there was me. So I get told I have to bid and I bid Lansingburg or, or Zone 4, the northernmost part of the city, just because I, I wasn't a, a big uh, I wasn't a fan of working the south end. The south end was it was it was sprawling. There was it wasn't as easy to get to places, at least with with Lansingburg and Zone Four. It was a big grid, so it went from 101st to 125th, and then first to to eighth. So you knew where you were going. It was it was a little bit easier to navigate. Um, so I just I bit up there, and the shift started. It wasn't there was nothing at lineup, and there was nothing at the beginning of the shift that made that night different than any other night that uh, I remember. Even to this day, it, it, regular routine calls started coming in, not motor vehicle crashes, uh, nonsense, barking dogs, 
uh, fights, domestic stuff that you get every single day. There was nothing that, that made that any different. So we, we start getting those calls. There was a lull in the night, probably, I don't know, seven or eight o'clock. And they had a concert going on at Powers Park, which is the park in Lansingburg. So myself and my partner that night, Dave Farah, we go and we just stop out because that's when I, when I do the presentation I have on the shooting. And it's one thing I, I point out to the guys and girls that I talk to is get, get out of your car, get, see the people that you, that you police, that you patrol, that you're, you're a human being. You're not a robot in a patrol car. You, you get out, you have fun. And we started throwing the football around with the kids. And, and I remember there was a, a kid who was, who was playing, I think for the high school in Lansingburg. And I think he was one of the quarterbacks. So we were throwing the ball around with him. Um, and it was just a, it was a good time. It was, it was good to get out and see the, see the kids and see the families and let them know that, you know, we're, we're not here to, to chase you down and, and bark orders at you. We're just, this is our job. And if I can humanize myself and, and play football with these kids, that's what I'm going to do. So we, we do that. I, I have, we had, um, there's a hot dog vendor up there. I, I think I had a, a bunch of mini loaded hot dogs, which is probably not the best idea. And, um, <laughs> We just go about the rest of the ships. A call started coming in. My partner got pulled to, to take a domestic report at the station. And it was real close to end of shift. So we work 3.30 to 11.30. We, we do eights. And at 10.57, we get a call for an attempted armed carjacking, which, which came in third party, which we don't get in the city of Troy. We don't get carjackings. It's not a it's not a common crime for us. We get everything else. We have homicides, assaults, stabbing, whatever. Every other call that you think of, we get those. But carjacking was not one of those things. And what made it extra odd was that it came in third party. Four two and three zero one. Four two. Three zero one. They have no idea what um, the victim was thinking. The he's walking out to his car. Uh, male suspect walks up to him, produces a handgun, points at him, says, "Hey, man, give me your car." And the, the victim, uh, he just he just must have been in a mood and says, "No, man, I'm all set." Gets in his car and drives away. And uh, he calls his his friend. He's like, hey, man, uh, this dude just pointed a hanging at me and tried taking my car. And he leaves. He doesn't stick around. He doesn't go down to the police department. He just leaves. So his friend then calls dispatch. So now this is like playing game of telephone. So dispatch gets the call, and they dispatch myself. And the only other officer that is in service for the whole north end of the city, Officer Chad Klein, who was working the neck zone south and zone three. Four to a copy. Blackmail, redshirt, black pants, do red. 
So we get sent up to the call, and I, as soon as the call comes out, man, that's, it's a little, it's a little odd, but I'm not, I don't blow calls off, so I'm, I'm gonna go up there, and Officer Klein is probably, I don't know, probably 15, 20 blocks away from the, the call. I'm probably 10 blocks, so I'm not, I'm not blowing up there, lights and sirens. I'm not going on the red. I'm not driving crazy. I'm driving up normal because I know. That officer Klein is is a decent distance behind me, and he's my only car for backup for the entire north end of the city. So I'm making my way up there and I I think the, I think the call is going to be nonsense. I think it's going to be it's going to be one of those calls that as we say it's GOA, it's going on arrival. It's we get up there all set and then we're back in service cuz it's it's third party and there's I'm thinking on my way up there there's no way this suspect male black red top dark bottom do rag is going to be up there. So, and that, that comes back, that's that complacency that every single police officer gets. And if they, if they say they don't get complacent, that's, that's nonsense. Every single cop goes through a stint of complacency where they, they start to get time on the job and they, they get comfortable because nothing bad's happened. And you just, you get that way. And I'm not proud of it, but it happens. So I, I'm making my way up there and, I check for the, the closing description again. And as soon as I make the intersection, I'm coming up on second Avenue. I see male black, red top, dark bottom, do wreck. Right in the middle, almost in the middle of the street. He's acting real weird. So I drive past him. He starts to walk east on 114th Street. So I loop around and I start to follow him. I'm following him at a, probably about a block and a half block distance waiting for Officer Klein to get up. So I radio that I have a mail that matches the description and I'm following him waiting for Klein to get up so we can do a street stop because even though I, I don't think the call – I, I didn't expect him to be there. I still don't want to stop out with this dude because he's supposed to have a handgun by myself. So, I mean, we have guys that are that are there, so I'm going to wait. So I'm following him. Um, he makes a couple turns, and I'm kind of giving out my location and stuff. Um, for wanting to work Lansingburg, my, my locations that I put over the radio were not not even close to being spot on. I was I was off. Uh, I was off streets. It was just, I, I sound like an absolute soup sandwich on the radio, but uh, it was enough that Klein knew where I was. So as he gets up, 
he's uh he's getting up to 112th street which is just about a block away from where uh, i was and i decide you know what? i'm gonna stop this dude here so i get out of my car and i say hey man troy please let me see your hands and he immediately dives behind a camper that was probably 10 feet from him so he takes off dive, dives behind the camper my gun comes out and i start giving him commands please let me see your hands get out from behind the camper and then he takes off and i i wasn't uh, like flash gordon then but i was i was okay i mean i was i was decently fast so the foot chase is on he's uh, running he's going down he's ducking down he's ducking down hold on It was just another foot chase, you know. It's everyone, everyone who's a cop, deputy, it doesn't matter. You, you get in foot chases, so I start chasing the dude. I'm giving my location and direction over the radio. Uh, I think I dropped my radio because I'm probably swearing at him. So I'm screaming at him, "Please stop! Show me your hands!" And then the last transmission I give before the incident is he's running through the parking lot at uh, Jimmy's lot. He's running through Jimmy's lot. Going through Jimmy's lot now. Which was a pizza shop at the corner of 112th and 5th Ave. And it bordered the um, East Park Place, which is the road that we were running down. So as I'm chasing him through the alleyway, or through the, it's it's kind of an alleyway, but it's it borders the park and it, it borders uh, Jimmy's Pizza. I come through the parking lot. Officer Klein blows by me in his uh, SUV, flicks his lights on, turns the corner, and I'll remember to the day that I die uh, what I see. I see the suspect, uh, Thaddeus Faison. He reaches center line, pulls out a silver-colored semi-automatic handgun, extends out, and fires one round into the driver's side window of Officer Chad Klein's car. I've been shot. Zero on your location. 112th and 5th Ave. And as I'm running, my gun's already out. I'm I'm ready to roll. And it kind of, it makes your, everything slows down. I'm like, is this, did this just really happen? Is this, is this going down right now? So as soon as Officer Klein punches the gas and, and gets out of my field of fire, I start to engage Mr. Faison. I get three rounds or so off on him, and the the Kimber 1911 that our SWAT team gets issued, I was I was using that night, malfunctions. So I get bang, 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 click. Like, well, that's not good. So thankfully from the training from the team and, and trying to be a, a master of my craft, it wasn't, it wasn't anything to fix it. It was gun came up, tap rack. I got the gun back up and I started to engage him again. Well, in the time it took me to fix the malfunction and to re-engage him, he is able to turn and he starts to fire at me. So now I'm in the middle of a parking lot 
there is nothing to my left. There's a couple cars to my right. I don't know if it's because I, um, I was more dominant with my right foot. I push off with my right foot and move laterally going right to left. As soon as I, I make, a, I think a step or two, I get hit with something and I hit the deck. Like, I mean, not, wasn't like the movies where I, I fell backwards. It was, I dropped in place. Shot fire. Hold it down. I'm hitting the leg. I'm like, well, that's, that's not good. Something's going on here. And in that moment, there's, it wasn't even a question of what to do. I immediately set myself up and I started to fire at him between my legs. And so now we're kind of having a, like a seated gun battle because initially, I don't know it at the time, but my first initial few rounds, I strike him in the leg. So he's immobile. So him and I are now having this seated gun battle, probably 10, 15 yards apart. So I realized that I am not in a good spot. So I fired him some more. I do a, a magazine change and then I try to get up and I realize that it's not working. Um, I try like a Hondo roll. Doesn't really work. I try to get up again. I fall like the third or fourth time I'm able to get up and my legs are jello and I run about 30 feet and I fall flat on my face. And yeah, they teach you like break falls and stuff in the academy and it, it that did not go as planned. I, I had my gun on my right hand um, and I the momentum kind of kept carrying me and it just, it carried me right to the pavement and I hit the deck. I snapped off the, the Surefire light system I had on my gun. It went sliding across the parking lot. I injured my left wrist, scraped my knees, scraped my elbows. Um, my gun so it went sliding. So I, I quickly scurry over like a baby. I crawl. I grab my gun. I get behind the car. Uh, there was a truck that was parked on the right side of the parking lot. So I get behind that and I reach down and I check my legs because something's wrong. I, I, I know that I was... I was hit. I don't know where I was hit. I don't know how bad I'm hit. I can still see him uh, underneath the car through the underneath like the tailgate. I can. I have my eyes on him, so I'm not just solely trying to fix myself. But I, I know that he's still there, and I, from what I can see, he's immobile. So I do a blood sweep. I check my legs with my hands, and I come up and I look at my hands, and they're covered in blood. This is a bad. This is a bad day. So luckily for me, uh, probably, I don't know, five, six months prior to this, probably right at the beginning of the year, I started carrying a cat tourniquet and a 1110 Kydex holder right behind my gun. So tourniquet comes out over my, my right leg, high and tight. It gets cinched, torqued down, locked in, good to go. I dump the magazine, uh, which had a couple rounds in it. I should have probably kept it, but I, it hit the deck. I put a new magazine in and I slid underneath the car and I fired two final rounds from underneath the car. It was about 34 yards. Suspect's down on 112. I am right now, but uh, somebody's got to hurry up. 
and those are the last two rounds that I fire. And I'm, I'm communicating to, to Chad Klein, who at this point, um, after he got shot, he smashed on the gas, drove over some bushes, came down Fifth Ave, and has parked at 5th and 112th. This whole uh, gunfight is happening at 112th in uh, the parking lot of Jimmy's Pizza, which is right at the intersection. So he's he parks just south of the intersection and walks up. And every single time he goes to talk on the radio, he has to put his gun in his left hand and then reach up and grab the radio because his whole left arm, he can't move because that's where the round impacted. Josh, you okay? I'm hitting both my legs. It went, uh, he was seated. It went in through the glass into his left shoulder, tore his rotator cuff chipped his uh, collarbone and then it's ended up being lodged up in his trap. So he couldn't move his left arm at all. So he's having to switch between the two, the radio, the gun, the radio, the gun. So him and I are yelling back and forth. Hey, are you good? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I'm like, Hey, you know, you need to get behind cover. You're kind of out in the open. So he backs up and we can kind of both see the suspect, Mr. Faison, who's, who's, he's not, he's not, lifeless he's he's up he's sitting he's he's moving there's cctv footage from the incident from a city camera and when you review the video he's up he's i think he's on his phone but he's not mobile which we can cover him and we're good so at this time initially right after officer klein gets shot he he keys at the radio and then he lets dispatch know he's, he's been shot so Sergeant Steve Barker, who is a, n- a newly minted sergeant, I think he got promoted in March of that year. He calls uh, what we call red zone, and that means every single person in the city heads that way. So every single police officer in the city is heading that way. Police officers, they called in from adjoining jurisdictions from one, two, three, maybe six other uh, agencies. They are now responding as well. So that the first two officers that arrive are Officer Ryan Davis and Officer Neil Tenike. They show up. Officer Neil Tenike doesn't even see Mr. Faison lying in the road, almost runs him over with his patrol car, uh, parks his car right at 112th uh, and 5th, and starts to run over to me. I, so I, I let him know where I am. I'm strobing with my flashlight. I let him know on the radio where I am. And as he's running towards me, Officer Ryan Davis is addressing Mr. Faison, who is on the ground on 112th Street. And he starts to address him. He walks up, he kicks the gun away and they try to get him into custody. He's not, he has one hand underneath his body. He's not producing it. They ended up, I think he took multiple rides of taser and I think three officers to get him into custody. Uh, Officer Klein walks up, tries to help out with him. And then the ambulance shows up and he hops in the ambulance and goes to, to Albany Med. And then shortly after that, I'm picked up and I'm brought there. And then the scene had to get secured. Like I said, officers from every jurisdiction that, that could, that could send guys to Troy to help out. It was the, the most, uh, intense and largest scene and involved scene that we've had in, in 40 years of the police department. So it just, it was a, it was quite the night. Say the least. <laughs> so what, you know, as this is uh, 
evolving and, 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 and unfolding and you're, and you're arriving at the scene and then you end up engaging in the suspect like this. And I didn't realize it was so close initially like that. You said 10 to 15 yards at a seat of gun battle. And that first initial moment when you realized you were shot, I was, I'm wondering if you remember what, what went through your head or what was the thought process or, or what, what came up in your, in your mental state? It, and like I said, when I, when I talk about this, when I go across country and I, I explain, you know, there's, there's three things that there's the, you only have three options. You can either lay on the ground and, and roll around like Ricky Bobby yelling for Tom Cruise. You can try to crawl and get, get behind cover or you can get in the fight. And I, as soon as I got hit and I hit the deck, um, I knew that I, I, I wasn't going to die today. I, it wasn't an option. You know, my, my wife's eight months pregnant. I, I'm getting home. So you got to stay in the fight. And that was, that was one of the biggest things that, that kept me going. It's, it's, you're never out of the fight and you have to, you have to do everything you can to, to stay in it. So as soon as I hit the ground, there, it wasn't even a, a question. It was immediately sit up and, and start putting rounds on him because if he's got rounds coming on him. And we, we talk about it when we, or we go to the range and I instruct him, we're just trying to disrupt that OODA loop. And if I can, if he can either get struck by gunfire or something can happen where um, it makes it more difficult for him to shoot me, and that is what I'm going to do. Hey guys and girls, I'm going to interrupt this episode to talk a little bit more about our sponsor, ProForce. A couple years ago, I was looking online for a new duty gun to replace my aging HK. My agency was taking a long time to close the deal, so I decided to purchase my own Glock Gen 4 G17. I shopped around and found out about ProForce and their insane prices on firearms and accessories, not just from Glock, but from all the major manufacturers, including Sig, Smith & Wesson, Ruger, HK, Colt, Remington, Springfield, and many others. Now, if you're a cop anywhere in Los Angeles or Orange County or even northern San Diego, you already know about ProForce and their amazing deals that they have at their store in Brea. They are only open to first responders, fire, law enforcement, medics, etc., and they are here to serve us. When they reached out to me to talk about working together, I wanted to learn more about them. So I spent a lot of time on the phone with them because though they're known for their great customer service, I just wanted to make sure they were a right fit for this, uh, for the show. Well, ProForce has two retail locations, Orange County, California and Prescott, Arizona. So if you're near either, make sure you stop in and see their selection. They've gotten rid of those two to three hour wait times that they kind of became famous for. And they've instituted an appointment system that makes your purchase so much faster. And they've got everything you want to go with your brand new gun. Holsters, lights, sights, ammo, and more. Check out their newest deals at ProForceOnline.com. And in fact, if you go into the store in Brea, Brea in Orange County, and tell the clerk you heard this ad, you'll get 20% off a Streamlight TLR1 pistol light. I use the TLR1 myself, and it's an awesome light, so get 20% off yours in store. Just tell the sales associate the secret password, the squad room. All right, back to the episode. And certainly, that, I mean, you know, it's interesting you talked about how you thought it'd be a nonsense call because uh, I've, I've done that myself too and I've gone to things and thought there was nothing there. And for you to turn the corner and then see the guy matching the description in the place where they said he'd be, um, how much did that get inside 
your OODA loop? And how did you have to transition from this is a nothing to this is a big something? It, so you, you're, when you come up the, you come up the road and, and I, I just, I just looked to my right and I said, oh, oh man, that's definitely him. Well, this is not, this is not a BS call. So I had to, so that's when you start, the, the adrenaline dump starts to happen and I, and you start to get into that you get, you get that, that amped up feeling like this, you know, this is going to, this is most likely going to turn into something. So it's it just, it just switches and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to explain because it, it happens, it happens so much. in when you're going to calls where it, it's a domestic and then it turns into a, well, now the part of party has a knife and it, it makes you go from routine call or nonsense call to, uh, to 100 in that blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. I, I just, your body just, you you know, and it's, it's just one of those things. I, you know, that it's, it's going to develop. You don't know it's going to develop into a gunfight. Maybe you think it's going to go into a, a foot chase or a fight or something like that. But it, I think you just, you know, in the back of your head, all right, well, this is not, this is not a fake call. This is not nonsense. This is, this could be the real deal. So let's get, it's game time. Get your head into it and, and play this smart. And certainly one of the things that uh, would even then I mean, you elevate it by the fact that he's there, then you elevate it by the fact that when you give him commands, he dives behind cover. Like, well, there's a huge red flag. Um, right? Absolutely. But what struck me in listening to you uh, on your radio that night was how you were able to remain calm. Uh, even even in the approach to the suspect and then, then the foot chase and how you're following him because like you said, that adrenaline dump and managing that adrenaline, uh, at the time, you know, here you are, you're, the guy's very likely got a gun. Um, you've got him in the, in the, you got the suspect where he, they said that he was, you know, and I just, it just struck me with how calm you were staying. Do you have a thought process or have a training or what is it that you think or it has been able to help you so that you stayed such so calm in these situations? I think the the biggest reason I didn't want to scream on the radio is because I knew in the back of my head that if I did scream, I would not be able to live that down at my department forever. <laughs> so, so uh, I'm just trying to remain calm because we've had we've had shootings at our agency since then, mm-hmm. and individuals have screamed on the radio to the point where. Nobody has any idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is the one thing that was going through the back of my head was, uh, I want people to know what's happening. And if I'm screaming on the radio, I, it doesn't help me and it doesn't help them. Mm-hmm. And if I need help, they, they gotta be there. So I'm just, I'm just trying to be calm. And I'm, if you start to scream, that makes, I mean, you know, if, if sure. somebody's screaming on the radio, every responding officer, they're already, uh, they're already going to be amped before they even get there. And obviously this is, this is one of those calls where they're mo- they're, they're going to be amped regardless. But if you are screaming bloody murder on the radio, it changes the dynamic for you, your partner and every other officer that is going there, just the way that you are um, on, on those few seconds when you key up. So that, that was is, another big thing. That is such a good lesson to pass, uh, to pass on to people. Cause you're absolutely right. If, if you get on the radio jacked up, then that's already to tell your partners that you're al- that you're already in a bad spot and they need to get there even faster if it's even possible. Um, 
but I, but I'm I'm also curious about um, you know the tourniquets because that's such a thing now appropriately as proof of your own injury. Um, but walk us through your injuries and what what you got transferred to the hospital, and then what uh, what was the end result of that, and what was your recovery like? So I get transferred to the hospital. The tourniquets on. Um, they give me a couple. I think uh, I think they give me a dose of morphine in the ambulance. And we'll just back it up. On before I even leave, uh, it was the only time I ever questioned my own mortality. The, the fire department captain rolls up, and I stare at him. I say, "Cap, do not, do not BS me. Am I going to die?" And he he looks down at my legs. He pull he like pulls up my pants. He looks at him. He goes, "I think you're going to be good." So I said, "All right, let's go." So the uh, the ambulance driver. I think he was a relatively new firefighter and the, the medics in the back were yelling at him to slow down because obviously if you crash the, <laughs> the ambulance, it doesn't help the guy in the back. So um, he was real nervous, but he did a really good job. So we get to Albany Med, which is the level one trauma center for the, the capital region of New York. And um, they're looking at my leg and they take the tourniquet off. So the tourniquet wasn't on for that long, but the, the round, excuse me, the, the 45 ball round that Mr. Faison was shooting in his gun strikes the pavement in front of me as I'm trying to move laterally and it breaks into two chunks and the one chunk enters my right leg and it transects my peroneal artery. Um, it shatters my right fibula and destroys my calf and exits. The, the left fragment enters the inside of my left leg uh, messes my calf up just like my right. And then it breaks my left fibula, but doesn't do any uh, blood vessel damage and exits. So I don't know um, that my right leg is the arterial bleed. I, I just, it was economy of motion. So the, the tourniquet was on my right side. So it came off and went on my right leg and, and it was good to go. So it was torqued down. It was all set and get to the hospital and they, they take it off shortly after I get there and they're monitoring my legs for pressure because gunshot wounds do uh, a tremendous amount of damage to, to soft tissue. So they're, they're watching for swelling in my legs. And unfortunately my, my legs continue to swell and they swell and swell and swell. And then when the uh, attending doctor comes in the next morning and I don't remember any of this, I, this is all for my wife. Um, they look at my legs and they say, he has to go into surgery right now. So they, they prep me for surgery and come to find out if they didn't do the surgery that morning, I would have lost my right leg that night. Jeez. Yeah. So I go into surgery um, and they do a, an emergency bilateral fasciotomy. So a fasciotomy, they take scalpels for the most part and they run down each side of your leg to relieve the pressure that is building up from the trauma. And when they open up the, the leg and the, the pressure, which was after the tourniquet was taken off, that pressure was kind of sealing in the, the peroneal artery. It opens it back up and I start to bleed out on the operating table. So I, I get two blood transfusions. Uh, they put a stent in and a bunch of surgical clips. Uh, the vascular group that came in emergency, they, they patch everything up, good to go, take the stent out and, my legs were left open 
And um, I think you saw them on the probably North American Rescue. You saw them on the, their page. They were they were left open for for a couple of days to, and they packed them and they they just to get the pressure and the swelling down. That eventually um, they stitched them up like Edward Scissorhands style, and that's how they were. So they were they sewed them up and. The probably the most humbling thing about this entire incident was finding out that your legs don't work and you can't walk. So learning learning how to to move like because at the time I, I had some serious nerve damage, so I couldn't curl my toes, I couldn't move my ankle, I had no uh, flexion. So my left leg was a little bit better than my right leg. But my right leg was like a paperweight. So I had to, um, they tried crutches. I couldn't, I was an absolute mess on crutches. I think when I was in OTPT, uh, I almost fell down like the mini flight of stairs they had. So I was, I was all set with crutches. So I was, um, I decided a walker was probably the best. So I had a walker for, for a while and I would kind of scoot around with my left foot. My right foot would kind of hobble, but there was really no movement. And then fast forward a few weeks, movement starts to come back a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm starting to wear, because you couldn't wear shoes. I couldn't wear shoes because the, the nerve pain was so bad. I would have nerve pain in the middle of the night that would that would like wake me up, that it, it felt like somebody was stabbing um, the bottom of my foot with an ice pick. So, and the entire bottom of my right foot was numb. So I could step on, I could step on a, a needle and it would just... I wouldn't feel it. the The sensation is, is sort of come back a little bit. It's still numb now, but it's not as um, like I can at least feel. Like I know my foot's in the gas pedal. I know it's in the brake, so that's good. But then it was, it was like I was. Ha- I had on a, a ten inch piece of foam on the bottom. I couldn't feel anything. So eventually, um, I find that I can wear Crocs. So I start to wear Crocs, and those are the only shoes that I can wear for months. And I eventually able to transition to a cane. And the thing that I noticed is um, going to the grocery store now with my my wife and infant son uh, is the, the dirty looks that you get from older folks when they see a twenty uh, late twenty year old dude get out of a car in a handicap spot uh, and walk around with a cane because they they think you're I don't know if they think I'm faking or I'm making it up, but they would like scowls. I would get the dirtiest looks from people, the dirty looks from people riding around in the, in the scooter at the grocery store mm-hmm. because it hurts so much to walk. So that was, I'll never forget that. I'll remember that forever. The, the, the looks that people give you because they think that you're, you're faking and you're making up your injury. Um, so it went from Crocs um, and the cane. And then eventually I was able to dump the cane. I had a, a decent limp. I did a lot of pool therapy and PT and OT and they started to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And then my brother, who's a personal trainer, really helped me out and got me back in the gym and, and got me strong and back to where I was. And, and I was able to pass a, a functional capacity test to make sure that I could perform the job. And I was able to come back a year and a half later and pass the PT test to get back on the SWAT team and um, ended up making the detective bureau. So. The recovery was not a, that was a real, real general overview of the recovery, but it was, it was not a fun time. 
So I'm just trying to wrap my head around a couple different parts of this. And if I understand <laughs> you correctly, in the in the moments after or and around your surgery, they had to slice your leg open on both sides to relieve the pressure. So I'm thinking while you're talking about that, and forgive the comparison, but like taking a hot dog and slicing it down both sides and splitting the skin open or the casing. Is that, am I thinking that correctly? 100%. And um, I, I'm, I'm not a squeamish dude, but the idea of having your legs sliced open like that on purpose and then left open for days on end, that, what was going through your mind at that point while you're sitting in a hospital bed? Did you, did you care about coming back to work at that point? You, or do you just want to go home to your family and, and call it a day in law enforcement? Or what was your mindset like? <laughs> Uh, so I, I, you know, I did, there was a, there was a t- uh, time in the beginning where I, I thought, you know, this is, um, this is not, this is not fun. This is not good. Um, but luckily the, the doctors that, that did the surgery, I mean, they were, they were the best of the best that, that were at Albany Med, the, um, they were lights out. So if that's what had to be done, that's what had to be done. I know they, they do fasciotomies a lot. So I, I wasn't, it wasn't like some crazy surgery. It was the first I've ever heard of it. But it is it is not super common, but it's not like unheard of. So I wasn't too worried about that. It was something to look at, look at my legs and, and patrol guys that would sit outside of the hospital room. They all they wanted to come in and look at it. And they would take pictures. And um, the the worst part about all of that was um, they would have to change the bandages, and it was excruciating. They would have to pack the wound. Well, pack the wound. I should say pack my calf muscle. They would pack it with gauze the entire length. It was probably, I mean, it's, it's probably, I don't know, a 12 inch scar on my right leg and then probably an eight inch scar on my left leg. They would have it packed with gauze. And then every, I don't know if it was twice a day or every day, they'd have to come and change it and then have to pull them out and put new ones in. And it was unbearable. But, uh, around that time and for the next couple of months after, you know, I really thought, you know, I don't know. I question whether my body is going to, be well enough for me to come back to work because there was times in PT where I am telling my foot to curl. I just want to curl. Like if you go to pick up a Lego, my son's Lego, pick it up my toes and put it in my hand. I'm telling my foot to do that. And it is not moving. And the, the issue with that was the nerve damage and the, the nerve, the nerve doctor that I saw, uh, made, made the analogy. If it's a cable wire and, Somebody takes the coax line, uh, the metal line that is inside that cable wire, and removes it. So you have the tubing still there, mm. but you don't have the connector inside. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes an extremely long time to, to, to come back. And it might not ever come back. So there's still parts of my leg that are numb. Like I said, the bottom of my foot's still pretty numb. There's spots that I can, I can poke it with a knife and... Uh, I feel like the guy in Mr. Deeds where it's, it doesn't, you just don't feel it, but I can move my feet and I can move my toes now. But there's a point where, you know, I, I contacted New York state retirement and I talked to him and said, listen, you know, um, what are the options if, if I have to retire and with New York state, it's, it's one, it is quite the loophole. If you are shot in the line of duty, they do not consider that, um, an accidental injury, which would give me like that three quarter disability retirement. They, they call it an inherent risk of the job. 
So, yeah. So if I came out of the station and I slipped on the granite steps and I blew my back out or got in a car accident, those are accidents and I would qualify for three quarters pay. But getting shot, uh, according to New York State, is an inherent risk of the job. And it would have been a, a massive uh, like five-year-long fight for me to get that uh, retirement. So it really, unfortunately, it wasn't an option. So it was either retire at uh, whatever pay I was making, which wasn't a ton, uh, or go back, fight to get back to work. Wow. Wait, wait for New York State to support, support you to visit. What, um, during that time, you know, and you touched on that, there there were certainly some some dark times. You had a new baby on the way. How long were you in the hospital before you were released to, to uh, outpatient care? So I was, uh, I was in the hospital from, so Saturday night, Sunday morning, I was there for the, the full week and they actually wanted to discharge me that Friday. And I remember having the conversation with the doctors and I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not comfortable, nor do I think I'm ready to go home. So they kept me the weekend and I left that following Monday and, um, I was released to my house and I had OT and PT come and they came in, uh, until I was well enough to, uh, have, I had a driver. So I was lucky enough. The department was, was really good. Uh, initially after the incident, I had an officer assigned to me. So I had, um, a cop that was assigned to me, uh, all day. And then they would have an officer assigned to me on the afternoon shift and overnight. So there was always somebody there. And then during the day, they would be able to drive me uh, to appointments and whatever I needed to do. So it was, um, it was, it was a long eight days where my eight month pregnant wife is sleeping on a couch in the hospital room. She's sleeping on a, like a bed. It just, the, the roles were unfortunately, reversed mm-hmm. and it, you don't you don't want your your pregnant wife taking care of you when she's when she's about to get birth you want to do everything you can to take care of her so it was it was definitely tough um but the thing that the thing that i think that got me through and, and didn't didn't let me fall down the the rabbit hole of um i mean we talk about all the time ptsd and that's that's a big thing and I am one of the the fortunate ones. I, I do not have PTSD. That, that doesn't mean that I, I might not get it. Uh, I was presenting in, in Connecticut, and I was talking to a couple uh, doctors that are that's they study PTSD, and this is what they do. And you know, it could be twenty years down the road, I could be at the grocery store and somebody slams uh, a freezer door, and then boom, mm-hmm. everything comes flood back. But for for me, for right now, I don't have I don't have the issues. I don't have the nightmares. I don't have uh, continually thinking about it unless I'm, I'm presenting on it uh, or talking to somebody about it. But for the most part, it's, it's not a daily occurrence and it's not a daily reminder. And it's, I'm incredibly lucky. And, and for, I think that helped that a lot because if that, that coupled with the baby and trying to help my wife and I, I could have been, it could have been very dark and it could have been very difficult for me, but uh, thank God that, that I did not, uh, I did not have issues with that. And, when I when I talk about the the story and, and to guys and girls that are that work in this profession, if something happens, and you don't even have to be the officer involved, we've had uh, an other serious incidents where officers that were responding officers had have had issues with that call. Sure, mm-hmm. and for for guys and girls to 
to not feel that they can they can talk about that and seek help is is such a disservice to to us in law enforcement because I mean suicide is the number one I think it's the number one killer law enforcement nationwide so uh, and locally I mean New York City's they've had three officers kill themselves in the, in the last month I think so yeah. mm-hmm. for us not to be able to to talk about this and talk about PTSD and and, and just get make it okay for people to get help is is an absolute uh, tragedy so it's i'm lucky that i, I do not have uh, any lasting injuries or issues mentally or anything but if people do they i wish they if they listen to it and they they are going through some stuff and uh, they want to they want to talk i mean i i'll i'll give whoever my my contact to vote they can they can reach out to me and, and talk it's it's something that that needs to be done and, and people need to find help if they if they are going through a tough time did you ever feel guilty about being shot? And what I guess what I mean is you've, you know, so we, I'll share it. I'll share an experience I've talked about on the show, but, um, I had a two month old son at home when I had a mountain biking accident and broke my back. And, um, I, I do, I, I celebrate the anniversary of that accident as my alive day. Cause I'm convinced that had I landed a couple inches to the left or right, I would have snapped my neck and been dead. Um, because of how my, my helmet shattered anyway. So my wife's at home, I'm in the hospital. My wife's at home with a a young baby. Um, and I, so I, I'm just empathizing with that experience of, of feeling like you're stuck in this hospital bed. Your wife is eight months pregnant, which automatically means she's uncomfortable and stressed and all these things are going on. And so I don't know. That's, that's why I asked the question, I guess. So the, I don't know if it's it's guilt, but you feel you feel bad. And, and when I do the the presentation and I talk about it, the hardest the hardest thing that I, for me to talk about, and it, you know, like I, I get choked up sometimes talking about when I when I go wherever I am, is is talking about my wife and talking about how she was notified. Because when I when we talk about that notification, um, she she wasn't notified the way that she was supposed to be notified. And I think that makes it that much harder. She was notified by, by friends from work friends. Uh, I should say spouses of coworkers mm-hmm. showed up at the house and they, they just, they said, Hey, Nicole, they're, they're banging on the door, banging on the door and say, Hey, you know, Josh has been shot. They don't know my condition. They don't know if I'm dead. They don't know anything. But now my wife is now in panic mode. Right. Um, going to the hospital, and that is the um, that is the hardest thing for me to talk about is is that because it's you, they don't sign up for this job. Right. They don't. It, it, we sign up for that, and it's it's just one of those things that it's so much more difficult for them to comprehend than it is for us. Yeah, it's, I had a similar experience because uh, my my accident happened. I don't want to say similar, but I mean the same thing where my accident happened in our jurisdiction. My search and rescue team came out and scooped me up uh, and my partners were there and trying to do the right thing or help out. Two of them came over to my house to let my wife know that I wasn't going to be home on time. And here she sees two uniformed officers walking up the driveway and, uh, you know, luckily everything I did was, I was off duty and everything, but of course she thought the worst right away as well. It's that. And I, and I just, I just felt awful. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, cause you, you, you do because you're, 
Like I'm, you can't, I couldn't walk around, hold my, my son. Right. You know, I'm scoot, I'm scooting around on my butt, getting the, I'm, I'm not. Like you have a yeah, brand new baby. I couldn't help out. Exactly. You can't help out as much as you want. And, and my parents were kind of in, in the same boat, how they were notified. And the hardest part about the entire incident was, even though my father was in the job, my mother wasn't. And it's not, he wasn't hurt. It was his son that is hurt because it was, it was his son that followed his steps. And it's, that is the hardest part about it is that is even mm. though he said he did, he signed up for it. Um, and I signed up for it. He didn't sign up to have his son hurt. So you, you, you know, I mean, you feel, you definitely feel responsible, but it's not, it's, you get through it and yet you have to fight through it and, and you, you have to talk about it. And once you get to a point where like now my wife is okay talking about it for a while, it, it was difficult. You know, it's, it's just, it's one of those things that you don't expect. Like I didn't expect to ever be involved in a shooting that I expected that if I was involved in an incident like this, that I would be okay. And I, and I hope to God that if I was put in a situation that my training would kick in and I would perform, I would perform to a standard that I, that I would hope that I would. And I'm glad that I did. And it's just at some point, it it gets to it comes full circle you you kind of get back to you get back to the way it was before and even though uh you are forever changed by this incident you you can make it through it and that goes uh it goes for them as well so yeah we we and you just touched on a little bit but we just had a guest on the show charlie plum who was a vietnam pow top gun pilot um Amazing guy spent six years in a POW camp in Vietnam and he's got a great saying that he said on the show, which is adversity is a terrible thing to waste. And so I wonder if you've ever reflected on the experience, the pain, the everything about the nerve pain and the, and the, and the, the, the adrenaline dump, everything from the adrenaline dump of the gunfight to the nerve pain and learning how to use your legs again to, fighting to come back to work and then not only fighting just to come back to work, but getting back to the, the SWAT team you were on before and passing those enhanced PT tests like that. That's a lot of adversity for one guy to deal with early in life. You know, it really is. And you throw the, 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 the managing a relationship and managing being a new father on top of that. And man, I'm just, I'm just struck by how, you navigated that adversity and what have you ever given thought to the lessons learned from that, that you can impart to some of the, the other people out there that are listening to this, that it might be dealing with something on their, on their own. Absolutely. So it's, and he, he makes a good point because that, that adversity and, and getting, getting through all that is what allows me to do this is, is to talk mm. to guys like you and, and to be able to, to spread this message. And it's, um, there's a, there's a cop down in Florida that I, um, that I follow on social media that, um, he, he has a saying that it's, it's not about you anymore. And it's, it's not, it's, it's about the guys that you work with and it's, it's about coming home to your family. And if, and if you, you think like that, everything you do, everything you do, whether it's 
it's at home. It's it, it's for your family. And you're you're, you're going to have selfish moments, and everyone and everyone does. But everything you do should be about your family. And everything you do at work is is about the person you're trying to help, or whatever actions you have. Hopefully, it is to help your fellow cops or to help to help somebody you're dealing with. Because at the end of the day, you take this profession, and you you take that oath, and you you are now putting your life below other people. So you just have to understand that all of that adversity and all everything that you deal with, it is your job to, to make it through. You can't, you unfortunately don't have the luxury to, to succumb to that because if you have a family at home that needs you, you have to make it through that. If you have a partner that is, that his life is on the line, you have to make it you have to make it through that. You have to do what you can to help him. And the same goes for people that you are trying to help at work. And just understanding that you have to, at the end of the day, you just have to do it. And it's just something that when I, when I talk to, and I do this presentation for a lot of recruits for various different academies, it's at, when you start your shift and you do whatever you have to do, your job is to always, and everyone, we always say your job is to always come home. But in that time that you're there, whatever you do, you have to do, I mean, you have to do it with integrity and you have to be the best person that you can be. But it is no longer about you. You wear the uniform, you put the shield on, whatever shield it is, a star, a shield, whatever, badge. It's, it is not about you. And you have to understand that because everything you do, has a consequence and for people to waste this profession on on ill-fated ventures is also a tragedy because there's someone out there who would love to do this job and love to help people and do whatever they can do and put their life on the line to help somebody that they don't know so people just need to understand that and fellow cops need to understand that when you go to work everything you do is is for the most part is going to be for somebody else and that other that other person could be your family so you just have to continually remind yourself that i'm going home tonight i'm doing what i can to help these people while i'm here because it's about them it's not about me and when i go home it's about my family because that the most important thing in the world is your family i don't take overtime a lot, a lot of guys take overtime i i'd rather take time off and be home i love my job uh, and i love being on the team but i love my family more so at the end of the day, my family will always come first. And that's, that's hard for guys when they start to get on the job and they start to have a family, you know, and they want to work the overtime shift and, and do this and do that. It's as, well, at least for me, my priority was always to, for them, it was always to be home as much as I could. So my family is the most important thing and everything I do is for them. So. Yeah, that's a, uh... Use the phrase on the show a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with it, be the one. And, um, comes from a quote from a Greek philosopher from, you know, Heraclitus, who says that, and he's giving the speech about the, the army and, and the kind of people that make up the army. And of course, this is, I know, you know, it's the exact quote. You know the quote? Absolutely. Uh, so I'll share it with everyone who, who isn't familiar with it, but it says, out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets. Nine are the real fighters, 
and we are lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one. One is a true warrior, and he will be the one to bring the others back. And so I talk about the one, and that's the one, the one who brings the other people back, the other warriors. And I I share that in the context of every officer is the one in relation to the public, but also we can be the one within our own agency, and we can be the the example and set the example for the others. And what you were just saying right there strikes me as just a better explanation of being the one than I've ever come up with. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So there's a, there's, there's another quote. So as and I have it at the end of my presentation and it's, it was put, um, this Instagram page, I think the Instagram page is daily stoic. Yeah. And it was put on to me by a good friend of mine, Brian Murphy. And if you don't know Brian Murphy's story, uh, I hope I hope that you guys do after this because he is one of the most unbelievable people I've ever met in my life. He was involved in an incident um, in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. He was he was confronted with a with a real bad dude, and he soaked up a lot of lead, and he stayed in the fight. And he is his story is unbelievable. And if if you guys Google him. <laughs> Google him. He, he goes all across the country. He does a presentation on it. He's a phenomenal guy, but he put me uh, in touch with, with this page. And the, the quote is from uh, Marcus Aurelius, one of the emperors of Rome. And the quote goes, it's unfortunate that this has happened. No, it's fortunate that this has happened and I've remained unharmed by it. So there's, there's a little bit more to the quote. That was a, a kind of a summarized version, but that's, mm. that's how you have to think about it. And it's, and that goes back to that adversity and you could go through all the adversity in the world and it, if it just drags you down and you turn into a ball of mush, you are no good to anybody. And, and if getting through that adversity means you have to talk to somebody, you have to get help. It, it, it doesn't matter. You are getting through that. And again, at the end of the day, your job is to get through that for the people that are in your life, whether it's your family, the people you work with or the people you are working for, that is what you have to do. Mm, I love it. I love it. Josh, you mentioned that you give this presentation around the country. Where can people find out more if they want you to come and, uh, and share this with their agency? Uh, they can, they can shoot me an email. They can shoot me an email at my, uh, at my personal email. It's uh, my first initial last name. So jcomatel at gmail.com. Uh, I love doing it. Uh, I'm hoping to be back out at NTOA this year. Uh, I just got to work out some scheduling stuff, but uh, I love doing it. And if, if a part of the presentation can can change the way somebody does anything they do at work or the way they carry a tourniquet or, or just having them carry a tourniquet or seek out some training or or just reignite uh, that mindset because uh, I talk about that combat mindset and that's huge and it's it's so important and if anything that you you pick up or you, you think what I did was terrible it changes the way you do something or you take away something from the presentation that is the only reason I do it and I love doing it so if if they want me to please shoot me an email and, and we'll be in contact. Spell your last name too, J. It is J, C as in Charlie, O, M as in Mike, I, T as in Tom, A, L, E at gmail.com. So J, Comatel at gmail.com. Josh, thanks for uh, being willing to come on and share the story with us. Um, when I, when I, when I learn more, when I watch the video, when I listen to the tape, it just, it just struck me as such a great lesson for all of us. And, you know, we had not spoken in person prior to hitting record today. And all I had to go on was 
some newspaper articles, the, like I said, the radio transmissions, and then that closed circuit TV footage. And sometimes you don't know the person behind the actions, or you, you often don't. I certainly, you know, but it's always fun to learn more about them, and it's fun and and, and fun's not even the right word. Inspirational, really, and motivating to learn about not only how you had the will to survive and push through that specific gunfight and how just a few minutes changed your life, but then what you've done with it since then and how you've used that to then, again, be the one and 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 push us all forward and push us all to be just a little bit better. And I think that's fantastic. So thank you for what you do. Thanks for your time today. And thank you for your service to the people of Troy. I appreciate the invite. Uh, it is an, it's an honor beyond. So uh, I just want to say thanks again. It's it was it was been great. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Squadron. If you like what you heard today and you got something else out of this episode, please do two things. One is share it with somebody you think needs to hear this information that needs to hear this inspiring story from Josh about how he persevered through such a traumatic event. And two, give us a rating on iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever they call it now or on the podcast player of your choice, and share it with people who uh, you think uh, would get something of value out of this. Now, Josh's story to me really connects with this idea of badges that we talk about, badges, beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, and service. And Josh really struck me as being completely in alignment in all those ways. And he's got a clear vision of the kind of officer that he wants to be, the kind of father he wants to be, and He's got his goals, and he's used his discipline to make sure that his beliefs and actions are in alignment, and uh, really a fantastic example for other officers out there to follow. Now, I talked about some ways that you might be able to learn how you can support the show, so here are a few. First, everybody shops on Amazon, right? We all do. I just bought a brand new water filter for my kitchen sink on Amazon. Now, here's how you can help support the show. If you go to the squadroom.net forward slash Amazon, and you use that link before you buy anything on Amazon. It doesn't have to be cop-related. But you use that link. It does, uh, it does something for us called an affiliate. And that affiliate is that it gives us a little kickback from your purchase, uh, acknowledging that you came to Amazon through this site. And uh, it doesn't raise the price on anything you purchase. It comes out of Amazon's share. And they're big. They can afford it. But it really does help us to spend, uh, get some uh, equipment and travel and do some of the things that we're trying to accomplish uh, here. So that's the easiest thing, the squadroom.net forward slash Amazon. And if you go through that link every time you purchase on Amazon, you really are helping the show out. It's, it's the easiest way to help, and it doesn't cost you any money. Also, uh, if you are a lover of Ranger Up clothing, uh, you can go to rangerup.com. And if you use the coupon code, the squad room, all one word, you can get 10% off your order. They also share some love with us. If you order through us, uh, you can also go to the squadroom.net forward slash support. And you'll see all of these there as well, but use that coupon code, the squad room to get 10% off at Ranger up. Now, if you're looking for one of the best fit, the best fitting ballistic helmet I've ever worn, but it's certainly a great ballistic helmet that exceeds NIJ standards and won't break your back, break your bank. It won't break your back either because it is light and it won't break your neck. But but check out hardheadveterans.com and use the coupon code SQUADROOM to get $20 off a helmet. It's fantastic. I really love my helmet and there's their quality stuff. Uh, they make the stuff. They make stuff as good as the other guys, but they make it uh, with your uh, wallet in mind. 
So that coupon code is SquadRoom, and you get $20 off. Now, another one that I love is Onnit. Onnit is awesome. Uh, Onnit's been a, a supporter of the show. And if you go through that uh, squadroom.net forward slash support to uh, get to um, our, our page, then you can go uh, and purchase on Onnit, and you get 10% off of some things and 15% off other things. And uh, you can get your kettlebells and your maces or your alpha brain, which is what I love. And I make sure I take before I do any promotional testing. And uh, uh, that's another great way to help support the show. And again, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram at The Squad Room. On Facebook, we have our, uh, our group for members to share information and share ideas and have a conversation that is uh, very supportive and very encouraging. So you can check us out on Facebook as well. And until next time, take care of each other and stay safe. <laughs>